Well, good evening, everyone. How are you all doing? Well, cool. Well, we are starting a new series this evening called Anticipate, and it's actually a Christmas series. And uh, you may be wondering, well, why are we starting a Christmas series before uh, Thanksgiving, and and uh, what's all of that about? Well. Christmas series, uh, and, and Christmas in particular, uh, has been a, a point of contention and, and tension for followers of Christ to live in America. I mean, if we really think about it, I mean, we have all this kind of tension of this commercialism around us, but we also, you know, we want to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus and all this thing, and we have a lot of tension around it, and a lot of times I think that tension is exasperated by kind of the, the short on-ramp that, that we uh, jump on to, you know, usually a, you know, you know, a best case scenario, maybe three weeks leading up to Christmas, you know, worst case scenario, uh, you know, we're just kind of doing something and then on Christmas Eve, you got to go from zero to, you know, Christmas and, and nothing flat. And so I was reading and rereading the, the Christmas story and just asking God to really just kind of show me uh, what he wants us to talk about and how we could experience Christmas in just a more meaningful way this year. And as I read the story, I realized that there was different things that was happening in the story that were kind of foreign to me. Like the first one, uh, just the, the three wise men, right? And they're off in the, the east somewhere in a foreign country. And they're sitting there and they're searching the skies. They're searching the stars for something. They're searching and waiting and anticipating a sign that humanity is going to change, that there's going to be a king that comes to bring justice and, and salvation to the world. And they and this great anticipation where they went to school to be able to learn how to study the skies, and then they would spend their nights looking at the skies, and then finally when the sign came that they loaded up all their stuff and they, they headed out to try to find this king. I mean that that's incredible anticipation to to kind of pattern your life all around one event happening. The other thing that was interesting to me was the shepherds. Remember the shepherds? They're out there shepherding their sheep and everything. And, and suddenly the, the skies light up with angels, right? But it didn't really seem to kind of blow them away because they had been told that this day was going to come, that they were to anticipate the coming of this Messiah. And why, while it was this great honor that they were chosen to be able to go and, and celebrate this event, it wasn't completely unexpected. In fact, as you turn back throughout the story of God, you turn through the Word of God farther and farther back, you see that all humanity have been waiting in anticipation of the coming of a Savior. And I don't think we're there. I think 
you know, that, that we don't really get what it must have been like to not have any hope of having a restored relationship with God. And over the next several weeks, that it's my hope and my prayer that, that we can go back and we can feel that kind of that, that hopelessness, but we can also feel that anticipation and that excitement about what it meant for the Messiah, for our Savior, for Jesus to come to this world. So I kept on going back and back and back in the scripture, and I got all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Now in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter chapter 2, basically God is creating the earth. That God is, is making everything. He's making perfection. That, you know, he's made the trees and the bunnies and, and, and the water. He made, you know, Adam. And then he said, hey, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I mean, it's cool that Adam and I have this guy thing going on. But you know what? He needs a, a helper. And helper in this sense is actually the same Hebrew word used for, for Jesus. So not a servant, but, but someone who, who is, is going to come alongside him and, and complete him and make, make him who God had envisioned him to be and to make sense out of, out of his life and his existence. So at the end of chapter 2, we are left with creation in its perfect state. We have all, you know, creation happening the way it should be. You have Adam and you have Eve. You have them with an unbuffered relationship with God that they, they are able to walk with him and, and talk with him. That, I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Then in chapter 3, in verse 1, things start to change. And this is where the story of the fall comes in. You know, it's interesting. You think about how long did it take from chapter 2 to chapter 3? How long did it take from the creation of man and woman and to be in perfect relationship with God for, for them to start looking somewhere else? The, was it a day? Was it a day between chapter 2 and chapter 3? Was it a week? Was it a year? Was it a thousand years? Was it a million years? Was it a billion years? We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea how long it was that Adam and Eve were in the garden walking with God in this perfect state. But what we do know is that at the start of chapter 3, Everything changed. It's like when you're brushing your teeth and you put out too much toothpaste. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> can't save it. Can't do. I mean, it's just wasted toothpaste. Can't put it back in the bottle, right? You know, you like ring a bell. You can't unring or unrung. I don't know what the right word is for it, but you can't undo it, right? I was thinking about this last night while my idiot neighbors were partying, partying all night with their boom-boom music. 
And in between boom booms, I was thinking about bananas. Now, do you peel or unpeel a banana? Yeah, you say you unpeel, but but you peel it. Yeah, see, this side of the room says peel, and this is this was my my problem because can do you unpeel? Can you cannot unpeel a banana, or can you not un-unpeel a banana? Because once you peel it, you it's unpeeled, so you can't repeel the banana. I still haven't got a good answer for you. Maybe you'll think about it and Facebook me or something. You know, some of you smart, you know, doctoral students can do your dissertation on on the banana peel dilemma that has been facing poor me. But this is the point. Something happened that could not be undone. And this is how it unfolded. In verse 1, the serpent, who was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made, one day asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, or if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. You know, as I read and reread this, you know what kind of hit me? Satan told the truth. He absolutely told Eve the truth here. That he went to her, and yet he, he asked her a leading question to lead her somewhere. Did God really say that you must not? He's asking a question there. But he goes on to tell her that, number one, you won't die. Now, we know later on in the story that she did not die a physical death right at that time. So, in a sense, he was telling the truth. The other thing that he said was... God knows that if you do this, your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. That is absolutely true. That if she ate of this fruit, that she would become godlike in the sense that she would know both good and evil. And she was convinced of this. She decided to eat. Now, the next part is extremely interesting to me. It says, Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Adam is standing right next to her this whole time. 
I mean, he's just sitting there or standing there next door listening to all of this happen. He sees that, you know, he walks with her and, and he's listening to this exchange between the serpent, Satan, and Eve. And he's just in silence condoning what is going on. And you sit there and you almost want to scream at the story. It's like, what is going on here? Adam, say something. Intervene. Like, I think about this and, and I wonder about, you know, kind of like his spiritual leadership here. That he's just kind of like going along. And I was thinking like, you know, if, if uh, Shannon and I were, you know, walking through the garden naked. They were naked. And we come up and we see the tree and a serpent starts talking. I am man enough to start screaming like a little girl and running the other way and taking her with me. I mean, really, think about it. I mean, this is a bizarre thing that's going on. But it's not really that bizarre because how many of us have stood by and watched loved ones flirt with self-destructive behavior and not say a darn thing? We just don't want to cause waves. We don't want to intervene. And we just let them kind of flirt and flirt and flirt and maybe take a little bit of taste until it consumes them and it consumes everyone around them. And there is destruction. And this repeats itself again and again and again in marriages and friendships and dating relationships and churches that we see our loved ones flirting with disaster we're just silent. He eats it, and at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. God said this, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And I love Adam's response. This is our stalwart first male, alpha male showing that he is the the foundation of the spiritual leadership in his family. This is the kind of man, ladies, that you could just trust that he's going to protect you and love you and not let anything happen to you. This is what he says. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Now, I am not a relational expert. But if you are throwing God and your wife under the bus in one sentence, 
your future is not good. <laughs> then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And then Eve lies. This is a bizarre story. We've got Satan telling the truth, and now we're going to have Eve lie. She says, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Let's go back. This is why she lied. The serpent said, you won't die. She ate the fruit. She is still speaking. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. She took of the fruit. She ate of the fruit. And that is precisely what happened. It says here, the woman was convinced that she would not die and that she would know both good and evil. She was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She was not deceived. She knew precisely what she was doing and what she was getting into. Or was she? I was thinking about this. You know, I have a high view of Scripture. And I know that this is an account. And she believes that she was deceived. And I don't know if it was just an excuse. I don't know if she's just being a wuss like Adam and she's just trying to think of an excuse or if she really was deceived. Like she wasn't deceived about what would happen per se. She knew what she was getting into. But maybe she was deceived about what it actually meant. And maybe it wasn't Satan who deceived her, but maybe she deceived herself. Like why did she eat the fruit? Like she had everything, right? Like she had a relationship with God. She had a perfect kind of place to live in the Garden of Eden. She had Adam. And she didn't know the difference. It wasn't like George Clooney was in the garden, you know, next door, and she was like checking him out, like seeing a real man, you know, that... that, that you know, so, I mean, she's, you know, th there's Adam. And he, I'm sure he was a good guy. So what was it? What wasn't enough for her? It's a perplexing question. And as I thought and I prayed about this, I had to go into some dark places in my soul to figure it out. And I think that what Eve really wanted was complete independence and power and no authority in her. maybe just maybe that really is 
the original sin is to elevate our own selfish ambitions and desire for no one to speak into our lives. That led her to disobey God. Let me put it this way. Who here has not ever dreamed about like winning the lotto or having some aunt who's loaded in, you know, Zimbabwe or something that, that dies that you've never known because, you know, and, and you inherit, you know, a gajillion dollars. I mean, we've all had these kind of, you know, bizarre kind of dreams. Why? It's not the money. It isn't. It's the accountability or the lack of accountability that comes with what we think. If we have enough, then no one will be able to tell me what to do. And maybe the original sin is just as simple as that. The same thing, it runs through every single one of us when relationships are hard. It's like, wouldn't it just be great if everyone just had to curtail their life around me? I mean, if you rewind and you think about it, this is what Satan is speaking into. He's like, you will be like God. That you will know both good and evil. That you will have power. That you will no longer be accountable to God, but you will be like God. And that resonated in her soul. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. So we have just gone from just 14 verses earlier. Perfection. Perfection in relationship with God. Perfection between relationship between people. And in 14 verses, everything goes to hell. Everything. And then God gives this curse. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. He's, he's talking to Satan. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This has been set into motion into the broken, messy world that we exist in today. You know, what is Satan's offspring? Is it little Satan's running around? Like a gnomes or something? I don't know. No. 
the legacy of Satan, the legacy of the enemy, is the pain and heartache and selfishness that, that causes all the hurt in our world. And what about her offspring? Us. This kind of fight between good and evil. This, this fight between allowing the darkness in our soul to get the best of us and get the best of others. And to refocus again and again on what God says is the most important thing in life, and that's having a right relationship with Him and a right relationship with others. The story of God has never changed. And then I absolutely love the next sentence, and the next sentence is what starts the anticipation of Christmas. Again, he's talking to Satan, and he's talking about Eve's offspring. And he's really talking about now, he's talking about Jesus. And this is the first kind of hint and promise that we have that, that God is going to send someone to restore the relationship. Isn't that fascinating? That in the heap of of trouble and, and mess that, that this situation has gotten into and right and, and the, the brokenness of the relationship without hesitation God is already formulating a way for a restoration of the relationship because that is always, always, always God's plan is to restore us to Him and this is what He says he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is fascinating to me. Moses is writing this account. And there is no possible way he has any idea what he is writing. That Jesus is going to be born, the Messiah is going to be born thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future from when this was written. And he writes that, you know what? Satan, the offspring of Eve, is going to strike your head and you will strike his heel. And what God is saying here is that there's going to be a one, there's going to be a Messiah, the very Messiah that the wise men were looking for, the Savior of the world that they were looking in the stars for, that they had patterned their whole life in anticipation of Him coming, the same one that the shepherds in the fields were looking for, and everyone in the nation of Israel and, and the, and the uh, princes and kings of the day. They all were anticipating this king, this Messiah. And it all started right here. Where God said, you know what? There is going to be one who comes and he will crush your head. He will kill you. 
and put an end to the power of sin and brokenness in this world. But I think the next part of this sentence is probably the most profound. Because he goes on and he says, and you will strike his heel. And you will strike his heel. Okay, heel, crushing head of serpent, got it. But head striking heel. What does that what does that mean? I mean it almost sounds like like my kids. Like they'll both come down and like Mazum will like Boo Bear hit me in the face. And then, you know, with his fist. And he'll go, uh-uh. You hit your face on my fist. <laughs> I mean, doesn't it kind of sound like that? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel with your head. You know, what, what, it, what does that mean? When you look back in the Hebrew, we're actually seeing that Satan is going to cause injury to God. That this broken relationship, this original sin, is going to cause injury and pain and hurt to God. We don't think about it that way, do we? I mean, I think in some sense we're all like, yeah, you know, Jesus sacrificed on the cross and things like that. But we, I don't know how often we make the connection between the sacrifice on the cross and actually that costing God something. That our disobedience, our, our selfish ambition, our broke breaking of the relationship actually hurt God. And it cost him something to bring restoration to the relationship. And you know what happens when our, our thought process goes that way? It's called cheap grace. It's cheap. We're like, a lot of times we're like, you know, God gives us the free gift of grace. But the free gift is not free to him, it's free to us. It was very costly to God. And right here in the first promise that he is going to make a way for us to have a restored relationship with him, he is flat out saying, you know what? I'm going to send a death blow to sin's hold on humanity, but it's going to cost me. And Moses has no idea what he's writing, but it's still prophetic. And it's still true, and it's still what happened. And as we look at this, we realize that the, the promise of grace is an expensive proposition for God. That his love for us and sending his only son to die for us was not a quick fix. It wasn't convenient 
but it struck at the very heart of who he is and what we mean to him. So that is why the birth of Christ was so anticipated. Because without it, there was no hope of restoration. There was no path. There was no future. There was only separation. You guys pray with me. Dear Lord, I know I'm guilty of thinking that grace is cheap. That it didn't really cost you anything. It's just something you did. But God, as we will see through this series and through your stories that you tell us, that in order for us to even have the opportunity to have a restored relationship with you, that it cost you dearly. In fact, we have no idea how much it costs you to make that path available. God, please elevate in our hearts and our minds and our souls the price that you actually paid for us to be able to be with you for eternity. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ow. Ow.